real grateful to be here today. And uh, she found out more about me in a minute last night than she did the 45 minutes we had breakfast this morning, I'll guarantee you. But she found more about, uh, honest about me this morning with my wife there, you know. It's kind of hard to lie when they're there. And uh, some of you know how, what I'm talking about when I say that. Before I forget, I want to thank Jack, who I've not met yet, for calling me and inviting me to be here this weekend. I understand you, you get real nervous. You better get real nervous when you find out the guy invited me is not here today. And uh, I'm real, I, I pray for Jack. I understand he had some surgery and he's going to try to make it tonight. But I want to thank Joe and, and the rest of the committee for, for your hospitality. The beautiful fruit basket that was in my room, I, I don't eat fruit. I'm a meat and tater man, but, uh, you know, it's pretty good to throw at your wife when you want to get her attention, so there's been plenty of that going on this weekend. Uh, but, yeah, you know, it's kind of hard to fight, to follow a, a jet fighter pilot, you know. Uh, I identify, you know, when he was talking about that 360, I did that one night off the top of a bar stool when my wife came to get me. <laughs> so, and that's about, the, he lost me after that, you know, and until he started talking that drunk, drunk, drunk talk, and, you know, I talked that real well. Uh, I come to you this morning unscarred by education. And I'm sure I don't need to tell you that now because you've already figured that out. And uh, my home group is the newcomer group in Joplin, Missouri. I haven't found necessary to take a drink since June 13, 1984. And there's not anybody ever knew me. He's not grateful for that. Uh, it's it's really a privilege and an honor to be asked to do anything in the, in the Fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous, you know. This committee's done all the work, now we get to play, and, and that's what we do here, is we just come here and we gather as a fellowship, and, and we enjoy the time we're, we're here together, and we take what we learn and go home and, and put it to use. You know, it's, it's real easy for me to stay sober in Alcoholics Anonymous, just when I go out, outside the doors of Alcoholics Anonymous, out there where we live, the, one, the other 24 hours that I have to live with me, and, you know, what this program has taught me is, you know, to practice these principles on a daily Basis is what I have here is a daily reprieve, and that's all I have, and this continues what I do in this program. And, and what you're going to hear today is a lot of what I've done in Alcoholics Anonymous. I mean, we do a lot of stupid things when we're out there drinking alcohol, but I carried some of those, uh, carry, character defects right inside the program of Alcoholics Anonymous. And a lot of things I've done here I'm not proud of, but it's my story, and you know, I'm here to share that. I I came from a good home. You know, there was no alcoholism in my family. You know, my dad he worked real hard, and I have an older sister and a younger brother, and you know they don't they don't drink uh, very seldom. You know, my sister's one of those two drinks, and I'm starting to fill it and quit. And my brother, you know, when he drinks, he he likes to get drunk because he thinks that's what they make alcohol for. But when he gets drunk, then he gets sick, and he don't want to drink for two or three months, and yeah, I never did understand that kind of drinking, and, uh, you know, when I got drunk and got sick, I wanted to get drunk again and get over being sick, and uh, they never understood that. Uh, I was raised in that home, and I never felt a part of, because I, you know, I just felt that I was different, and what I've come to find out in the program of Alcoholics Anonymous, the reason I felt that way is because I was different, you know. I wasn't doing the things they was doing, and I didn't feel the way they felt, and uh, and I had nothing to do with them. Nothing, absolutely nothing to do with them. I uh, I felt that way because of things I was doing when when I was growing up. I you know I started running with the kids that we we like to find things before they was officially lost. You know, and uh, we would just do anything we could to just run the streets, and we called it fun. You know, and it was it you know compared to what we did then and what they're doing today, it was fun. <laughs> you know, we didn't have no drive-by shootings today. You know, the other day I was talking to a guy. He said he was standing at a payphone. He said he heard this noise going off. And he looked all around, and these guys drove by and was shooting paint guns at him. I thought, man, that, I've never tried that. That sounds like fun to me. I could do that kind of drive-by shooting. And uh, yeah, that's the kind of things we was doing growing up. I and uh, I got to high school, no fault of my own, you know. It's uh, you just keep going to school one day at a time. And I think Bud said it, you know. It's, 
it's real interesting to follow someone like Bud. You come up here and he stands up here for five minutes, gets everybody pissed off, and then gives you the mic. <laughs> but uh, it wasn't smart guys I was running with. You know, we were just we was little terrorists. You know, and we just terrorized the neighborhood. And uh, yeah, we got to be 15 years old, and that's what you'll do if you don't don't die. If you live one day at a time, you'll grow up to be 15. And, we started borrowing a guy's car, a friend of mine's dad's car that left town every weekend, and we'd go over to Kansas, and we discovered alcohol. And, you know, uh, I'm not a social drinker. You know, the first time I drank alcohol, I got drunk, I blacked out, and I passed out. And the last time I drank alcohol, I got drunk, I blacked out, and I passed out. And, and I'd like to tell you that's what happened from the time I started drinking till the time I got to Alcoholics Anonymous. The truth is, is when you live in blackouts, you don't know what happened a lot of that time. And, and I don't like the way they described it to me, you know. I think they exaggerated some. I don't remember doing some of the things that they said I did, and it was awful embarrassing when they was talking about them. So, you know, I don't repeat a lot of the stories. But I want to tell you, I, uh, I got out of high school and got that diploma. They'll give you a diploma in Missouri if you can, can do a, a D minus, and uh, that's what I did. I got through high school on D minuses, and you don't learn a lot that way, but you get a diploma, and that's all I needed, you know. My dad told me before I left home I had to have a diploma, and he didn't tell me I had to have an education, so I got the diploma and left home. And uh, I uh, got out there and uh, started drinking like we drank. You know, I'd get drunk and I'd wreck cars and I'd go to jail, and I didn't like jail. You know, a lot of people, I guess, like jail. They go to jail for a long time, you know. I talked to a guy one time, he'd been in jail 27 times. I'm man, I'd like to went to that jail. You didn't want to go to jail, I went to 27 times. But uh, it wasn't my deal, so you know, I made a promise to myself that if I was going to drink alcohol, I was going to drink alcohol successfully and stay out of jail. And I did when I come through the doors of Alcoholics Anonymous. My best friend was a prosecuting attorney. And if you have best friends who are prosecuting attorneys, you don't have to go to jail a lot. You get real paranoid, but you don't go to jail a lot. But uh, I uh, I got married when I was 19 years old because my friends were getting married and they were settling down and they wasn't wrecking cars and they wasn't getting in trouble. So I got married. Aaron Judge, you know, bad mistake. Should have never got married. Uh, I'm supposed to go to work. Supposed to come home. Supposed to come home with a paycheck. Rules that was never explained to me when I got married. And uh, I can't tell you a lot about that marriage. As you know, I I left my hometown. Uh, about six months after we got married, because not, not, not only do I have my folks talking to me about my drinking, you know, I've got a wife talking to me about my drinking, I've got in-laws talking to me about my drinking, and you know, I don't like to talk about drinking, I like to drink. And uh, I just never thought it was amusing to sit around and talk about drinking. Let's, you know, let's either do it, let's don't do it, and they was the no do it times, and I was wanting to do it. So, you know, I got out of there, and uh, we moved to Kansas City, and I went to start a career in the grocery business, and you know, you know that's what you do when you're uneducated. You know, you got to go to work, and uh, you don't get a position, you get a job. And I never liked to work, but uh, I started working because I was told to go to work, and I get a group to get a paycheck, and I was supposed to bring it home. But I usually stop somewhere and forget to take the check home. And uh, she didn't understand that. And uh, we had a we had a little girl in that marriage, and. I don't remember a lot, and I do remember one day I was coming to in the back bedroom of a mobile home we was living in, and uh, I uh, I woke up or came to that morning, and I was full of fear, and I'm sure you understand that. I'm sure some of you have been there, and uh, I didn't know what I did the night before, but I knew it wasn't good, and uh, I tried to listen because I heard him talking out there, and I heard a lady tell, tell my wife, said, if you love that baby, you know, you'll... You'll leave. You'll take that baby and leave before he really hurts someone. And I couldn't figure out what I, I did, but when I got enough nerve to get up to go out there, it came to me the night before in a drunken rage. I had threw a, a brick through a storm door and missed that baby by inches. And I didn't feel good that morning. I didn't feel good, and I'll tell you why I didn't feel good. I didn't feel good because I wasn't raised to do those things. I had never seen that. I had never had to watch that. That's not the way my folks raised me. And I didn't feel good about that. And I made a promise that morning that I had every intention in the world to keep. And I promised her that if I couldn't cut down on my drinking, I would quit drinking. Because I didn't want to put her and that baby through that. But see, I'm an alcoholic, and I don't know how to quit drinking. 
Yeah, I can quit. You know, Scott, what's it, eight weeks? God, can you imagine going without alcohol? Man, your fingernails had to be that long to go without a drink for eight weeks. You know, I could do eight days maybe, and that's just how much heat was on. But I would get so miserable, I'd make them miserable, and they'd say, go drink. And that's all I was waiting for, is that go drink, and I'd go drink. And uh, that marriage ended, and it wasn't long after that marriage ended, you know, I, I got married again, and I married a, a high school sweetheart. And uh, I had dated this girl in high school, and, uh, you know, her she came from an alcoholic family. And, and I say that because her dad committed suicide through this disease, and it wasn't, it wasn't pretty. It was, it was pretty ugly to watch. And... Uh, but her dad was, when I was young and we was dating, he was always my hero. He was the guy that comes sliding in the, the driveway sideways and he'd jump out of that car. And, and whoever was in that car with him would wait until he'd go in the house. And he'd go in the house, start a fight, and they'd all leave. And then when they'd all leave, him that person was in that car going to the house. And, and man, what a life. What a life. You know, this is the best of two worlds. Instantly he became my hero. And, uh, you know, I watched that guy drink and... Uh, then he became a real violent drunk, and, you know, I, I swore I would never be like that. I would never be like that, because I, I didn't want to be like that. We got married, and, you know, I, I thought, you know, I took one of those spot check inventories that talks about in the 12 by 12, you know, she had a little girl, and I had a little girl, so I thought, well, it's taken care of. We don't need no little girls, and about three months Later, she gets pregnant. We have a little girl. Now we got her little girl, my little girl, and our little girl, and there's just a lot of little girls running around there. And, uh, you know, they think it's a good idea. I go to work on a regular basis and bring home paychecks. And, you know, I don't do those two things while well, I can do one or the other, but not both. You know, if I go to work, then I think that money ought to be drinking money, and that's what I do. And, yeah, I start calling my father to uh, wire me money the day after I get paid. And, you know, the non-alcoholics, you stay after the weirdest questions, you know. My dad used to say, you know, son, how did you lose your car? I said, that thing weighs 3,000 pounds, boy. You know, how do you lose a car? You know, I said, dad, you know, if I knew where I lost it or how I lost that car, I wouldn't have lost it. It's pretty obvious. And, you know, it's not the answer he wanted. You know, I can almost get you killed. And uh, he would say, you know, son, you got paid last night. You know, where's your money? <laughs> Well, it's obvious it's not here, Dad, because if it was here, that my wife would have it. You know, I just need money. They never understood. I never knew what they wanted me to say. You know, I used to tell my dad the truth, and it was the God's truth, and he never knew that. I'd say, I don't know. And I, did, I didn't have a clue. I didn't have a clue why I was living the life I was living. I just, all I knew is when I did not drink alcohol, I was irritable, restless, and discontent. I couldn't stand to live with me. When them women said, we cannot live with you no longer, I understood that. I knew exactly what they would say, because I could never live with me. I could never get up and look in the mirror and be okay. I would get up there, and I'd look in that mirror, and I'd say, why? Why do you live this way? What's wrong with you? Why can't you be like your dad? Why can't you just go to work, come home, be happy with what you got? Why can't you be like your sister? She's a good person. She loves her family. She takes care of her kids. Her kids don't have to see what my kids see. I think, you know, why can't you be like your brother, you know? That kid got caught with alcohol when he was 13 years old. He went to jail. Dad went and got him. He said, I promise you, Dad, I'll never touch another drop of alcohol until I'm 21. And he didn't. He didn't. I think, what's wrong with you, boy? How can you do those things? I mean, I, I told Dad a lot of things in my life, but I never kept those, those promises I'd made. I made him promise after promise after promise. And I couldn't understand why I could not feel like those people, why I couldn't be like them. And I'd be so irritable, restless. I didn't like the fact that I was writing bad checks. I didn't like the fact that I had bill collectors looking for me. And I thought, man, I just... The only thing would take those feelings away was alcohol. Once I started drinking, I didn't have to feel that way anymore. It was okay. It was okay. So I, uh, I made another error in judgment. You know, I'd been married about three years, and you know, my drinking progressed, and uh, we had them little girls, and uh, that first little girl was living with my first wife. But we had the two little girls in our house, and. Uh, 
Yeah, I went home one day and I'd been drinking and my wife started on me like she did so many times before and, and I set her down and I said, you know, what you don't what you need to do is you just need to have a few drinks. You know. If I had to sit around what you drink all the time, I'd be irritated too. What you need to do is you just need to have a few drinks. I said, if you just drink a little bit, you won't worry about how much I'm drinking. You won't count how much I'm drinking. You know, you'll just have a few drinks and you'll be okay. What I didn't know was, is when she started drinking, she was going to drink like I drink. Now, believe me, I was used to coming out of blackouts and looking around and seeing what I'd tore up and who I'd beat up. But now I'm coming out of the blackout and the house is tore up and she's beating me up. Now, what an order. I can't go through with it. Yeah. And I can't tell you how many times that happened. And, you know, we sit here and we laugh about that this morning. But, you know, there was little girls that watched that going on in that household. When they would get up the next morning and see that house tore up and one of us beat up. I can remember going home from work and hearing them little girls saying daddy's home and they'd run to that bedroom and they would shut that door. And I don't know about you, but when that happens to me, I have to drink. I have to take those feelings away. So I would go get me a drink and once I had two or three drinks, they knew it was safe to come out for a while. And they would come out. And they never knew how long they was going to be able to stay out before they had to go back. And that's the way it was. I'm not proud of those things. But that's the way it was when I drank alcohol. I didn't go out and rob no banks. I didn't kill nobody that I know of. Yeah, I didn't do all those things when I drank alcohol. I just drank alcohol. And when I drank alcohol, I drank alcohol because I didn't like the way I was feeling. In November, well, in 1982, my dad, I hated my dad. I hated that man with a passion. And I hated him because I felt like I could never be what he wanted me to be. And I hated God because all he wanted to talk about was God. And I used to think if there was a God, you know, I wouldn't be living this way. The last nine months of my dad's life, my dad was paralyzed with cancer from the waist down. And I didn't go see my dad much because all my dad wanted to talk about was my drinking and God. And I used to go and see him and, and he would sit there or lay there flat in that bed and and he would tell me about God, and, and I would sit there and thank God. If there's a God, if there's a God, why is it that I'm living the life I'm living and you're living the life you're living? Yeah, you've been a good man. I know you've been a good man. I know you've tried hard your whole life. But why would a God do this to someone? I can understand maybe why God's after me. But if there's really a God, why are you living the life you're living? And so I didn't go see much. My dad died, you know, and I got to be with my dad the last 48 of hours of his life because my sister come and got me and took me. And she said, we're going to go stay with dad till he dies. And my dad's last words to me was, you know, one more promise. You know, promise me you'll quit drinking, promise me you'll take care of your mom. And I made that promise because that man was dying. And I left that hospital and went straight to the liquor store. Because I knew one more time I had told that man something I could never live. And I drank. In November 1983, my, my ex-wife at that time, we had been divorced for about six months, but it got to the point, you know, some of you will identify with this, you know, you can't live together, but you can't live apart. You know, two sickies just can't do it. And uh, I was back in one time, and she went to another to Alcoholics Anonymous to get me sober. And as you can see this morning, it worked. <laughs> not that quick, but it worked. Uh, the sad thing about that is she's not here today. When she comes to Alcoholics Anonymous today, she, she stays sober. But she don't find it necessary to come here on a regular basis, and most of us know what happens to people that don't come here on a regular basis. They continue to drink again. And you know, I pray on a daily basis that maybe she can get back and give me what get so freely what she gave to me. And uh, I'll be ever for grateful for that woman for bringing me here. But I came in on the... Uh, I didn't quit drinking there, you know. She brought home a big book of alcoholics and alcohol. She brought home a lot of literature. And, you know, as I said, I'm on scarf education. And there's no pictures and all that stuff. And so, you know, I knew it wasn't for me. 
I'd pick up that book, and there wasn't any picture, so I laid it back down. And, you know, that literature, you know, I, I would think, you know, this is good for her. And I thought that because she wasn't beating me up no more, you know. And, uh, but I'm not so sure. I, I need this deal yet. But and on November, or January 2nd, 1984, you know, I came in from a New Year's Eve drunk. And that's how I drank. You know, when I'd go out on a New Year's Eve drunk, I'd get home about two days later, and I came in, and when I came in, she met me at the door. And she said, you can either go to Alcoholics or go to AA or, or you can go. And I didn't know a lot what she was talking about, you know. I just knew that morning I was sick and tired of being sick and tired, and she could have said, you can go to Amway or go, and I, we'd been in Amway that night because I didn't care, you know. I was just sick and tired of being sick and tired. I have a friend that talks to about, you know, when the gig was up. And I really believed that I knew, I knew that day the gig was up. I knew that no longer I had a fight. And I was willing to go anywhere. And I went to the first AA meeting I'd ever went to in my life that night. And uh, knew instantly I was an alcoholic. <laughs> and if you're here this morning and you... Uh, you're comparing instead of identifying, you're not through yet. I can promise you that. Because that's what I did to that first meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous. I had no intentions of identifying with those people I went in and compared. All those people had been to treatment for alcoholism, and I had never been to treatment. I'm not a product this morning of any treatment center out there. I'm a product of the Alcoholics Anonymous, the old-timers who come and get and you take you to meeting and let you sit there and shake and hope you don't die. <laughs> you know, that's what it was when I got here. But I went to that meeting. They talked a lot about treatment. They talked about God. They was in the basement of a church. They said some real smart stuff. There's a bunch of them. They was all old people, you know, that's Harlan's age or older, somewhere in there, you know. <laughs> Yeah, I really like Scott last night. Scott taught me. I never knew you could abuse your sponsor from the podium of Alcoholics Anonymous. <laughs> Thanks, Scott. I appreciate that. But a uh, bunch of old geezers sitting around there, and they was talking about God and talking about not drinking, <laughs> you know. And, and they said, we need you. And I turned around and looked because I wanted to make sure they was talking to me. And I looked over and there was about 14 stairs. And I looked back over and I said, I bet you do. <laughs> I bet you. I'm going to have to carry every one of you out of here tonight probably. <laughs> so uh, they said, you keep coming back. They told me some smart stuff like I probably had some brain damage. And that wasn't no big news because I had report cards from the Carthage school system that showed I had brain damage long before I took a drink of alcohol. You know, so needless to say, you know, I didn't identify very much of that meeting that day, but but I had nowhere else to go, nowhere else to go. And, and I came back to two or three, four or five, I don't know. I came back to some more meetings. And the only thing I realized is, you know, they said, if you don't drink, you won't get drunk. And I bought that, and I walked out of a meeting one night, and I took turned to my ex-wife, and I said, you know, we don't need to go to those meetings no more. I got this deal. Somewhere down the line, they're going to want money, and we don't got it. So I says, we just won't drink one day at a time. We won't get drunk. We don't need to go to meetings to do that. We can do it by ourselves. And she did, and I didn't. And, uh, you know, I, I don't know how long I last. And finally, I was back out one more dime. And, you know, when I went out this time, uh, I got arrested one night, and I went to jail. And this officer wrote up a bunch of tickets and I don't know what I'd done but evidently he didn't like it because he wrote for about an hour and he handed me all these tickets and told me to sign them well you don't hand anything to a drunk and tell him to sign he tears it up and gives it back to you and you get pissed off and the fight's on but uh, one more time I was uh, you know I, I had people who knew me that could keep me out of trouble and you know I they called so I'd called my prosecuting buddy and he wasn't in town that week and uh I thought I was in big trouble, but this jailer had called someone to come and get me and took me home. And uh, I started drinking alone, and I'm not a loner, you know. When I drink, I like to be out where the action is. I like the neons and the nylons, you know. Let's, I'm not sitting home drinking by myself, but that's what I'm doing now. I go to work each day, I get up, I go home, and I drink. And I drink until I black out, until I pass out. And I look at them four walls, and I know this is it. 
I know it's this because there's nothing else. There's nothing else. I'm too paranoid to go out there. My prosecuting buddy got me out of trouble. He uh, he went to the chief of police and told him, you know, if you arrest him one more time, I won't prosecute him. So he didn't lie that night when he said he was living in his car. He was living in his car, you know. I mean, when they ask you for an address, you tell them an address. If you're living in your car, you're living in your car. And that's where I was living at that time. And, uh, you know, it, it gave me a free ride one more time. You know, I, I got brave enough to go out once in a while. And I would go down the main street of a town of 5,000. I'd throw my beer cans out to cops or whiskey bottles, whatever, just let them know it was me. And uh, knowing that they couldn't really do anything about it because he was going to keep me out of trouble. But what happens when you do that, you get real paranoid because these stories come back to you about you're not going to live on the river, you're going to live under the river, you know. And uh, so I got to where I wouldn't go out at night because I thought the cops was after me when I got sober and came to Alcoholics Anonymous. There's a little old gal named Millie in Joplin. And Millie said, Dave, paranoia is when you think you're out to get you. Believe me, those people was out to get you. So, you know... I'm sitting there just drinking and, and doing my deal, and you know I get up and I go to work each morning. And some days you get up and the car's there, and some days it's not, you know. And if it's not there, you walk to work. If you're still not through, you know, and you have a job, make sure you live close to that job. Because some days you'll drive, and some days you'll walk. And if you got to walk, you know, you don't have far to walk. So I lived close to work, and I'd walk to work. And one morning on uh, June the 13th, in 1984, yeah, I. I went to the Elks Clubs because that's where I went when I didn't work. And I was a bartender there. And I went down to Elks Club and I got the bar raid open and we had a swimming pool out there we took care of. And I started drinking that morning or early afternoon and sometime that evening I blacked out and later on I passed out and I woke up the next morning one more time without my car. And, uh, you know, Scott talked about pukers. You know, I, pukers. I love the puke. It's dry heaves that damn near killed me. When there's nothing else to puke and you're still there and there's no feeling like it. If you've not had that, you know, I feel for you. You know, you'll have a spiritual awakening, I'll guarantee you. And, uh, cause you don't know where you're coming or going and your eyeballs you think are going to pop out and there you are and there's nothing else to do but stay and, uh, Man, you do some deep meditation that day. And I did that that day, and I got up and I walked to work because my car wasn't there that day. And I got to work, and and I'm a high-bottom drunk. And when I came to Alcoholics Anonymous, I had a job, I had a car, and I had a place to live. And I had, had a car because my dad had died in 1982, and my mother didn't drive. She gave me that car. And I had a place to live because my sister was paying rent on an apartment for me. So I didn't have to live in my car and on the streets. And I had a job because I worked for my brother-in-law and my sister wouldn't let him fire me. <laughs> I bought him drunk. Yeah. She said, we're paying his rent now. You know, imagine what we'll, we'll have to give him drinking money if he don't work. So I went to work that day and I, I worked in a grocery store and I went back in the cooler and I got me one more drink because I had to drink to get rid of the shakes so I could do any work. And I went out there and tried to work, and a man came in, and he seen me, and he started talking to me. He started talking to me about him. And he talked to me about a program called Alcoholics Anonymous, and he wanted to know if I'd ever been. And I said, yeah, I've been there. I've been there. You know, and it's a good, people, good program for people who don't want to drink. But I'm not an alcoholic. My problems are far, far deeper from alcohol. And I said, I might have a few problems now, but they'll go away, and I don't want to not drink forever. And this guy just told me about his life and about what happened. He didn't have to do this one day at a time, and by one day at a time, he had had a year sober and alcohol synonymous. And how much better his life was. And he left. And when he left, he didn't tell me I need to go to A or I ought to go to A or he'd take me to A. He left. And some time went by, and another guy come in, and he told me the same story. He told me about his life and what happened in his life. And he hadn't had to take a drink in six months because he went to AA on a regular basis and how much better his life had got. And this guy laughed. 
And he never tell me that I need to go there or I ought to go there or he would take me there. He just laughed. Yeah, I'll always be grateful for those guys because, you know, I've never, I've never sat in a meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous with either one of them guys. I don't know whether they're sober or drunk today. I have no idea. I have never seen them again. And I say I've never seen them again. That's not quite true. I did see them for maybe two or three times after that because they were salesmen and they came in that store on a regular basis. And right after that, one of them had moved to Dallas and the other one, you know, I'd, he lived in northern Missouri and I'd just never run across them again. But I didn't tell them. And I had no intentions of going to Alcoholics Anonymous. I, I didn't intend to leave that job that day and go to a meeting with A&A, you know, because I knew it wasn't for me. I knew, you know, Scott talked about, you know, the simple-minded people. You know, that's, that's who I thought it was for. Those simple, you know, yeah, you have a, you get drunk and have a wreck or something. You know, you run to A Street and you like that. No, my problem, I'm underfinanced. That's my problem. <laughs> you know, I'm just underfinanced. If I could just get my finances in order, I'd be all right. I've got bill collectors looking for me. I've got ex-wives looking for me wanting child support. I've got bad checks all over town. You know, that's my problem. If I could just get that in order, alcohol wouldn't be the problem. You know, I'll be all right. But I, I left that job that day at 4 o'clock, and I walked to town, got my car, and I went to the post office, and that's somewhere you never went if you live the life I live because you're not getting no love letters. Mom's not writing to you to see how you're doing. You know, there's a whole bunch of threat mail there and it's what we're going to do if you don't do and, you know, I'm used to that. And uh, went down there and I ran into a Catholic priest. <laughs> it's ironic, you know, get to hear one, an ex-Catholic priest tomorrow morning. That's his story. But, you know, this guy, I didn't like him the first time I met him, and I liked him even less this time. <laughs> and he just took one look at me. He just took one look at me and said, You ready to come back, boy? And I don't know any more today than what I knew that day, but I said yes. I said yes. And I didn't know that I was never going to have to take a drink of alcohol again from that day to this. I didn't know that. Because I didn't want to come back here. I knew that I would never stay here, that this wasn't it for me. But I said yes. And he told me, he said, you go home today, and you don't drink tonight, and tomorrow night I'll pick you up and take you to a meeting. And I went home that day, and I didn't drink. I shook a lot, but I didn't drink. And I didn't drink the next day, and he come by the next night, and I went to a meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous. And that's basically what I'm here to talk about today. Is when I came back, it was the last place on earth I wanted to be. But yet it was only people on the face of earth who wanted to have anything to do with me. And I'll always be grateful for that. It seems like the more you don't want to be here, the more they love you. You know? And they tell you all kinds of stuff. You know, I went back to that group and... uh I don't knock Alcoholics Anonymous, but those people in that group, they didn't believe in sponsorship. They didn't believe in big books of Alcoholics Anonymous. There's some still people in that group that's running that group that's been sober a lot of years. It's never done a four-step. And I'm glad that works for them. I really am. But I couldn't relate to anything they said. They kept saying, if you don't drink, you'll feel better. And, yeah, I felt better, but not the way they was talking about. And... They told me my life was going to get better. My life didn't get better. I continued to write bad checks. I didn't pay them bills. I didn't try to pay that child support. You know, I just didn't drink. And, you know, if you don't drink for about 90 days, that ex-wife will come back and start talking to you, you know. About that time, she decided to move back to southwest Missouri, so I thought I needed to change in life. And, you know, I'd been in the grocery business for about 17 years working in a grocery store, so I went to work in a dynamite factory, you know. Don't do that. Don't do that. You don't want to work there sober. You know, if you work in a dynamite factory, you need to drink. You'll go to work some days and you'll realize you're the only sober one in that building. Now, that's insanity. Best job I ever had.
It was the best job I ever had. Paid a lot of money, worked a lot of hours. You know, I got down there, decided when I got down there, you know, I'd move in with Mom. You know, I didn't think she'd done a very good job raising me the first time, so I thought I'd give her a second shot at it. <laughs> so I moved in with Mother and went to work in a dynamite factory, and I thought, boy, I, I don't need AA. Just a bunch of old guys sitting in basements of churches, reading out of a blue book, talking about God, talking about not drinking. Not my not my kind of life, you know. I I can stay sober, but I don't need to go to AA. Stayed sober two weeks and I'm nuts. Nuts. So I went to a meeting, give me a little blue card, a meeting schedule, and a bunch of old men in the basement of a church reading out of a blue book, talking about God, not drinking one day at a time. Again, I said, y'all, it's not going to work. I made it two more weeks, and I'm climbing off the walls. And so I got that card out, and I said, here's an open meeting. I'll go over here to this open meeting. I know what open meetings are. They're meetings like this. you got a guy up there talks for an hour. You don't know what he says. He don't know what he says. He bores you half to death. You think he's never going to sit down and shut up. But nobody bothers you, so I'll go over there. So I went over to that meeting and walked in, and it was a round table in a hospital, cafeteria. And there were seven people sitting there. And I got there at five minutes till, you know, just like I'm playing. Five minutes till, five minutes when the meeting's over, get out of there so you don't have to talk. So I get there five minutes till, there's seven people at that table. Three of them jump up and come over, run over to the door to meet me. One of them was an old man named Dan. The other one was a little lady named Millie. And the other one was a, a guy named Robbie. Two of those guys are dead today. Millie is still a big part of my surprise. But Dan, uh, they welcomed me and told me they was glad I was there. Got me a cup of coffee and sat down. And I don't know why Dan told me some things he did, but he, the first thing he told me, he said, Boy, so I'm going to tell you this. He says, I'd rather you hate my guts and tell you the truth as lie to you to be your friend. And boy, I found the meaning out of that real quick. <laughs> he didn't care about hurting your feelings at all. He didn't read in there that alcoholics are sensitive people. Uh, <laughs> Pretty obvious he had not been in the big book. And uh, he didn't care. He, when he said he didn't care, he didn't care. They had a group conscience one night. You know how that is? It's the three people that got the most sobriety do the talking, you do the listening, and no one else votes what they say goes. Well, Dan and I, well, I had less than a year, but Dan had a month more than I had, so Dan got to be treasurer of the group. I didn't smoke. Seven people. I'm the eighth one. I'm the one that don't smoke, so I get the ashtrays. Now, my first resentment in Alcoholics Anonymous, I'll guarantee you. But what I had to do is I had to get there 30 minutes early to put the ashtrays out for those who smoked. Then you have to stay late to clean the ashtrays out of those for those who smoke. So they'll have clean ashtrays next time they want to smoke. Then got drunk. Dan got drunk. I stayed so grateful I didn't get to pick my jobs and alcoholics and alcoholics. Yeah. Tough group. Tough group. My group, we give chips out every meeting. This group, if you had a chip coming, you had to stay sober till birthday night. Cause they don't, you could get that white chip anytime you wanted. But if you wanted a 30 day, 6 day, 90 day, 6 months, any other chip, you had to stay sober till birthday night bunch of candies coming in Alcoholics Anonymous today because we're just giving chips. Well, you got to give them a chip now because, you know, they might get drunk before they get their, you know, birthday night. <laughs> uh, all means, we don't want them to have to wait another 10 days for a chip, so. <laughs> birthday night rolled around. Six months. Old man called me up to a podium like this. He reached under the podium and he had the half a cake. And he said, boy, I'm going to tell you something. He says, usually we give whole cakes here, but he said, you're not going to make it, and I don't want to miss it, so here, give me a half a cake. <laughs> Second resentment in Alcoholics Anonymous. You, know, you couldn't have paid me enough to drink the next six months. Don't make that old man eat them words. Now, I stayed sober, stayed sober a year now, because I didn't have a sponsor. One showed them, don't need a sponsor, you can do this deal on your own. 
If you're new, hear this. You know what you're going to do if you stay sober by yourself without getting a sponsor and working any steps and alcoholics and for a year? If you're anything like me, you're going to load a shotgun three times and put it to your head and want to die. Because you're not going to change anything. You're not going to quit writing bad checks. You're not going to pay bill collectors. You ain't going to be a father to those kids. You're not going to pay that child support. You're just going to not drink, and you're going to be miserable, and there's a lot of people around you going to be miserable. Because I'm the type of guy, when I'm mad and angry, I'm going to make damn sure you are. And that's what happened. If I'm going to AA, I'm not drinking, and I'm real miserable. And when I got that year cake, if they suggested that I have a sponsor, I got a sponsor, and we worked the steps to the best of my ability. I went out there and I tried to make some amends. I went to that first ex-wife. I told her I was alcoholic and I'm not going to tell you what she said. <laughs> you know? I tried to clean my language up today. You know, when I came up here this morning, I asked God and I said, let me use foul language. And you know, if you catch me using foul language today, it's because God didn't listen. <laughs> but I... uh I went to Axel's wife and I told her, I said, you know, I've done you some wrongs. And she said, yeah, you have. And I said, my sponsor told me I need to come and ask you, you know, what I need to do to make all them wrongs right. And she looked me right in the eye and said, die. <laughs> I'm living proof half measures will avail you something, you know. But I, uh, one more time, I knew those steps didn't work. You know, and I got involved in Alcoholics Anonymous, and that sponsor ended up uh, doing some things that he shouldn't do while sober, and because he got where he didn't drink, but he didn't go to meetings, and he ended up in penitentiary. And I got another sponsor, and this sponsor believed in service work, and he got me real involved in service work, and, uh, you know, I thought that's where it was at. And I'm three years sober, and I'm sitting at his kitchen table one day, and and we're talking about my financial situation, and we hear something, and well, we're talking about my financial situation. He's telling me everything I need to do. We go to the door, and they're repossessing his vehicle. <laughs> now, you guys laugh, but I went back to that table and continued to listen. <laughs> so, that's the way it was. That's the way it was. I'd done a lot of things I wasn't proud of. I was uh, three years sober. I was dating a girl half my age. And I walked through the doors of Alcoholics Anonymous, and I looked cool. I looked real cool. But I'd go home at night, and I'd lay my head on that pillow, and I couldn't sleep because I knew I wasn't cool. I knew I wasn't cool. I had a daughter her age, and I knew what I was doing wasn't right. And I couldn't sleep. And... We was laid off from work, had a little time off, and we was running around Alcoholics Anonymous. I was going to lots of meetings, and boy, I'll tell you what, if you go to lots of meetings of Alcoholics Anonymous and you don't drink, you know, you'll be all right. But if you don't work the steps, if you don't get in the program of Alcoholics Anonymous, you're going to be nuts. Because what you hear in Alcoholics today, Alcoholics Anonymous today, and a lot of meetings I go to have absolutely nothing to do with Alcoholics Anonymous, and I'll guarantee you that. And there's a big difference in meetings and fellowship and the program that Scott talked about. The program of Alcoholics Anonymous is outlined in the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. And unless you work and rework those steps, there's nothing, nothing going to change in life. And that's what was happening to me. As I was going to meetings and I was not drinking, and my life was just getting more crazier than it had ever been in my life. And we went to a convention in Tyler, Texas. And it was a year that I had the ice storm. And we drove across the ice to go there because they told us we couldn't make it, so we left a day early. And we went. And as a guy got up there, I'd heard this guy a thousand times. I had a tape of his, and I'd listen to this tape over and over again. And I, the only thing I could think is I thought this was the most arrogant guy I'd ever heard in Alcoholics Anonymous. I could never hear what he was trying to say. And what I was doing was comparing. And that night he got up there and spoke, and he wasn't even supposed to speak. He was supposed to chair a meeting because the speaker couldn't make it in because of the ice storm. He spoke. He told my story. 
And I hooked up with this guy. And my life, he got me in the program of Alcoholics Anonymous, in the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous, my life changed. I went home and I ended that relationship about six months later. He told me, he told me, he said, I want you to make a decision on that relationship. He said, I either want you to go home and end it now, or he said, I want you to give it the best six months you ever gave anything in your life. Well, you know, I'm sick. I'm not stupid. I'm not going to give up a good thing now. So, you know, I'll give it six months. But in six months, I ended that relationship because I knew it was a sick relationship. I, uh, a lot of things happened in my life. You know, he became my sponsor, and, you know, I, I got real involved in the program of Alcoholics Anonymous and quit messing around with the fellowship so much. I got to make amends to a lot of people I'd harmed. I got to love my kids, be a part of their lives. I had a, that youngest daughter, you know, she's always been close to me. Through it all, she just always felt, you know, that she needed to be close to her dad. And that oldest daughter, you know, she she was just the joy of my life from day one. And, uh, you know, our relationship had never been close, but it got closer than it had ever been. I got to see her walk across stage to get her diploma one night, and I almost missed that. I almost missed that because of, of my fear and my ego. I got up one morning, I was living in Tyler, Texas, and uh, I just got a new job, and I didn't, I'm always the type of person that if you go to work for someone, you ought to give them everything you got. And I didn't feel like I deserved to ask off to go to my daughter's graduation, because I hadn't been on the job very long. And I got up, I was living with my sponsor and his wife at that time, and I got up that morning, got ready to go to work, and he could tell I was down. He called me in his office and asked me what was going on, and I told him. He said, I want you to go in there and pack you some clothes. And he said, you go by and tell your employer you're going to Missouri to your daughter's graduation. And he said, if that employer fires you, you'll find another job. But that girl only graduates once. Jobs will come and go. And I went and got in my car, and I drove six hours to get there, and I made it. And when I did, that little girl come across that stage, and she had tears in her eyes because I was there. Yeah. I'm grateful. I'm grateful for strong sponsorship, for people telling me what I need to do. This guy, uh, you know... I went to Tyler, Texas to make a fortune. <laughs> you know, I had got laid off that dynamite factory and they told me it's going to be a while before we got back to work and, uh, said, you know, why don't you go find something else and we get ready to call you back. We will. And so I moved to Tyler, Texas with my sponsor and his wife. They was moving down there and, and, you know, I thought, uh, he's got enough pool. He can get me a good job here. Everything's going to be all right. My life's going to get better than it's ever been. And I got to Tyler, Texas, and he opened the treatment center, and we started a meeting over there. And, and it became one of the largest meetings in Tyler, Texas at that time. And uh, we got to work with a lot of new drunks. And, uh, you know, life was great. I met a young man who, uh, he didn't come through, our, through the treatment center. He came there one night. To a meeting, and he, you know, he told me that he needed a sponsor, and, and uh, this kid had been through seven treatment centers. He'd been through Hazleton, some of the finest. His, his folks was millionaires, and they'd send him to some of the finest places in the country. And his dad at that time was paying for this little digit on his car that he had to blow in it to start it, to make sure he wasn't drinking. And uh, you know, he. He come and asked me to be a sponsor, and I told him I can only teach you what you know has been taught to me. And you know, I started sponsoring this kid, and and uh, in October this kid's going to have ten years sober in Alcoholics Anonymous. He is now the CEO of his dad's company, and I went there to get rich. You know, another young lady come through that treatment center. You know, Tammy. Tammy had been in eight or nine universities and dropped out because of drinking and drugging. And, and Tammy was a program of attraction. She had half her head shaved and it was dyed. And <laughs> she uh, wore T-shirts with no bras. <laughs> I wanted to know why uh, another woman wanted nothing to do with her. <laughs> and uh, I sponsored Tammy on a little ego trip because I wanted to think I could do something that I shouldn't be doing. And 
And I did, and and sometimes ego works in your favor, and what happened is because I wanted to prove this still would work. You know, my wife and I, a couple of years ago, got to go to Tyler, Texas, and watch Tammy walk across the stage and pick up a diploma, and she became a young lady. She got married, and she's had a baby, and she sponsored a lot of women in AA, and now she's chose to, to go to church more than AA, and that's her life, you know, but I went there to get rich. Not to carry a message, just to get rich. And I don't tell you those stories to brag. I tell you those stories because I don't know what God's got in store for me each day. I don't know what's happening. I went back uh, in 1990. <laughs> I, uh, my wife likes me to tell this one, so I'm going to tell this one. I went to, you know, went to business for my, in business for myself in Tyler, Texas. I started a yard business in Tyler, Texas in January. Yeah. I went broke in the yard business in Tyler, Texas in February. Yeah. In May, that dynamite factory called me to come back to work and I was real grateful. <laughs> but I, uh, I was going home and I was going back to Missouri and uh, my mom had been real sick that year. She had a few heart attacks and in and out of the hospital. And You know, when I called my mom and told her I was coming home, I told her, you know, send me a couple of newspapers because I had to find a place to live. My mom said, I want you to live with me. I didn't want to do that. Well, I'd been on my own now, and I've become self-supporting through my own contributions, and I wanted to live on my own, and I went and talked to my sponsor. I said, my mom wants me to come and live with her because of her health. And he reminded me about that little promise I'd made my dad in 1982 about, you know, you'll quit drinking and you'll take care of your mother. He said, you've, you've lived half of that promise, why don't you go take care of the other half? So I got to go home, and... uh take care of my mother the last six months of her life. And it was a great, a great feeling, a great feeling. There was no guilt, no guilt there. You know, when my mom died, I was all right, because my mom became my best friend. You know, she loved us, but my mom never went to al She just loved what Alcoholics Anonymous had done for her side. She loved it. I, uh, I was... Sitting there, right after she died, about two months later, you know, I called my sponsor. And, you know, I, I'd not been in a relationship in a long time. You know, I uh, was in and out of those early in sobriety. So I realized, you know, that maybe I need to learn to live with me before I try to screw up somebody else's his life. And, uh, yeah, that's pretty much what I did. I called my sponsor, and he said, well, maybe you ought to find someone to start dating. <laughs> I said, how do you date? I know how to take hostage, but I've never dated. <laughs> so, I don't know how to date. I called this lady up and I said, you know, you want to go to Springfield? They're having a speaker meeting up there. And so she called three or four other people. So when I found out she invited three or four other people, I just took off and went to Tyler for the weekend, called her and told her I wasn't going to make it, going to Springfield, have a good time. Because <laughs> I didn't know. I, I just didn't know how to do anything like that. So I, next time I asked her out, I said, you know, I, I want to go on a date. It's like, it's just me and you. It's not me, you, and three or four other people. I mean, at this time, I was driving a two-seat two Triumph. How are you going to haul a car load? You know. So uh, she agreed to go, and we had knew each other for a, year, a few years, and, uh, you know, we tried to date. But we don't know how to date. You know, we started uh, dating in January. We got married in May. <laughs> and I'd like to introduce you to my wife, Marjorie. And uh, yeah, it's, not only do I not know how to date, I don't know how to be married. I uh, we got married and. Um, we decided we would communicate. And when we communicate, the people three blocks down the road, here's communicate. <laughs> and because people said you need to communicate. So we communicated. It's the only way we knew how. And, and I'm going nuts. And, you know, I, I've got so much ego. And I said, you know, I'll drink. 
you know, proven fact, if I drink, she'll leave. Nobody's ever stayed with me when I'm drinking. So I'll drink and she'll leave. Yeah, I, I'm not going to get divorced. So I, uh, I got too much ego. Yeah, I, I've sat there on that side and I've judged those people that came in Alcoholics Anonymous, got married and got divorced, knew it and it wouldn't work. You know, I know Joe, he, he can't have a relationship and thanks. And I, I knew what would happen if I got divorced, you know. People would be out there judging me. And I didn't want that to happen, so I'll just drink and she'll leave. So I started calling my sponsor, telling him about going to drink. And he thought maybe I ought to get a divorce instead of drink, and he's screaming divorce, and I'm screaming drink, and, you know, it's just, it's really a, a sick deal, and, and what happened is my sponsor loved me so much that he didn't know what to tell me. He had absolutely no idea, but he didn't want me to drink. And one day when we was on the phone arguing, he told me, he said, maybe you better find another sponsor, and it devastated, just really devastated. Here I am in a sick relationship. We got some financial problems, you know. And now I've lost my sponsor. And this is the guy that saved my life. Literally saved my life. And now I'm angry. And I really don't know what to do. And thank God for the old timers of Alcoholics Anonymous. Thank God. Because I went to a couple that's been in Alcoholics Anonymous for a lot of years. And uh, they've, they've been married for a lot of years. And they argue and fight as much today as the day they got married. And uh, their name is Don and Norma. And I asked them how to be married. How do you be married? I don't know how to be married. And they spent time with me. They spent time with me, told me how to be married. And I'm so grateful for that. So grateful for that. Because, see, I would have lost my best friend. I'm married to my best friend today. And I'm married to my best friend because of the people of Alcoholics Anonymous. The ones who care enough to tell you what you need to hear. Not the ones that tell you what you want to hear. And I don't, I don't criticize my sponsor for what he did. Because I know today he did the only thing he knows to do. And what happened is he and I became closer. We became closer. See, I owed him some financial amends. And I probably would have never paid those financial amends because he didn't want the money. He wanted my friendship more than he ever wanted anything. But what I had to do is I had to go to that man and pay him the money I owed him. And when I went and paid the man, the man called me. He said he said he wanted to spend the weekend with me. And that's how this still works. You know, I... Uh, I can't stand here this morning and tell you all the things that's happened in my life since I got here because there's just so many of them. I, uh, those little girls, they grew up to be big girls. Uh, the oldest one, her and I had a relationship that was under, unbelievable. I, I got to walk her down the aisle when she got married. You know, she gave me a beautiful granddaughter. And everything was going great. She went through a divorce a couple of years ago. And when she went through that divorce, you know, I wanted to take responsibility for that because I figured if she hadn't had to watch that, she wouldn't have to live that. And I realized that wasn't my responsibility. That's her life. And what happened is that first ex-wife, I've tried over the years to make a lot of amends to that woman, but she'll never accept my amends. I know that today. And a year ago, she broke that relationship up with my daughter and I. And I wish that I could tell you today that that don't hurt. But the truth is that hurts. That really hurts. Because uh, we have a, a five-year-old granddaughter, a six-year-old granddaughter that we ain't seen over a year. And we had this little girl about every week. And that hurts. But I know it's all right. See, because I don't know what God's plan is. It's just I have to live it. I have to live it today. That youngest daughter, a few years ago, she come to me and, you know, we, her mother had called me and told her she was living a life that she didn't agree with. And 
I called my daughter and she came to talk to me and we talked about it and I didn't agree with it either. And I really wanted to disown that daughter. I really didn't want to own that daughter anymore. I wanted to just put her out of my life. And I went and talked to my sponsor at that time. And my sponsor had pointed out that all the years that I was drinking and I was an alcoholic and I was making her, embarrassing her and making her feel ashamed, she never disowned me. And what that done is that made my relationship with that girl that much closer. Today we have a good relationship. Her life's her life and my life is my life. She comes to my home all the time, you know, she just, she's my baby. We just had her 24th birthday a month ago. And she's a part of our life. My wife's got a couple of kids. She's got a son that, uh, you know, it's amazing how God works. You know, he chose not to be a part of our life, and he has two grandsons, and he didn't want to be a part of our life for a long time, and we don't know why. You know, we took him to one meeting, of an AA meeting, and he got well and said he would do this on his own and didn't want to be a part of our life. But uh, he had them two little grandsons, and uh, about the time my daughter pulled out of our life, this boy called us and said he wanted to be a part of our life and he didn't want us missing them boys growing up. So God gave us two boys for one girl. That's how it works here. If God never takes, he don't give back. And I know that little girl will be back. I know he'll be back in God's time, not mine. But we got them two little boys and then she's got a daughter who uh, don't know where this kid come from. She went to college, got a degree. Went to work, then decided she'd get married, now decided to have a kid. <laughs> yeah. My proposal was, you're what? <laughs> you know, I don't know how you do those kind of things, and I know her mother didn't teach her those things. <laughs> but, uh, we, oh, that's good today. It's good. Uh, I have a friend that used to be my sponsor over in Dallas, Texas, and, uh, you know, we, a few years ago he bought into a business with a gal that his fiance, and, uh, when he did he got real busy and we didn't get to spend much time together, and so I called him and told him I need to get a sponsor closer, and, uh, yeah, I did, and, and we've continued to be friends and call each other on a regular basis, and, he bought into this business three years ago. He tried to get me to go work for him, and I would tell him, yeah, I have a job. You know, when you get a position, call me, and because uh, I don't want to work. And uh, in November, he called me and said, you know, I got the closest thing you're ever going to get from me is the position. And he said, I'd like for you to come to Dallas and talk to me. And so I went to Dallas in January and talked to him about, about this job he's got, and uh, it sounded good. It sounded fun. Because he employs a lot of drunks. And he said, you know, come down and work with us for a week and see whether you like doing this. And if you like doing this, you know, maybe, you know, maybe we can get something going for you up in Missouri. So I went to, to Dallas for a week and took a friend of mine and we went to Dallas and we worked this for a week and we had a blast, really enjoyed it. And, and we sit down and we talked and, and I went home and my wife said, what are you going to do? And I said, I'm going to quit my job and go to work for John. She said, really? And she says, oh, what John offer you? And I said, he offered me an opportunity. And she looked at me and she said, that's nice, but we have bills. She says, did he offer you any money? <laughs> I said, no, he didn't offer me any money. He just offered me a, an opportunity. And she said, you're going to quit your job and go to work for John for an opportunity? And I said, yeah, I won't repeat what she said. No. <laughs> But there's some of you here that know my wife. My wife, she likes to worry a lot, and so I just let her worry a lot, you know. And I've not never worried because, I, you know, when you've lived in your car and you've lived in the gutters, you know, you don't have a lot of worry. You know, you don't have to worry about lights or <laughs> food or anything like that. You know, you just live one day at a time. And so when I come to Alcoholics Anonymous, you know, I really related to the one day at a time. I just... I just go do it whether it's right or wrong because, you know, I know there's a program here to work that's going to make it all right. And so I don't worry, and she don't like that. She likes to worry, so I said, well, let's, let's do it this way. I'm going to go work for John. You worry about it, and we'll make it all right. 
I don't know what God's got in store for me tomorrow, you know. Everything I have today is just stuff. It's just stuff. It's God that's given me on loan. I've got some things I never dreamed I could have. I own a house today. I, I drive a brand new automobile today. You know, I have season tickets to a football team that don't know how to win today. You know? <laughs> I just say that because I know you all are close to the Cowboys. You're going to tell me that anyway. Yeah, I had things I never think I could have today, and they're just here on loan. They're just here one day at a time, as long as I keep doing what I'm doing today. And I'm going to close, and I'm going to close by saying this. I think it's real important that the new people hear this. We don't say it enough in the meetings I go to. The reason we're here today, the reason we're here today is not because of a treatment center movement. The reason we're here today is not because the government put a bunch of finances in alcoholism. The reason we're here today is because there was a stockbroker in New York went to Akron. And think about it for a minute. He didn't go to Akron to start AA. He went to Akron to get rich. He was going to put a deal together that's going to make him and Lois a bunch of money. I mean, can you imagine the conversation he would have had with God when he got down there and said, Okay, God, now what? You know, I come down here and put this deal together, fell through, and got this bill. I sent you there to start AA. What do you think Bill would have said? What would you have said? <laughs> what would you have said? I know what I'd say. Well, I'm going to go down to the bar and drink a little bit and find some drunks. <laughs> you know, ease the pain. Ah, Bill went and found another drunk to talk to because he knew that that's what he had to do. I'll tell you some things he didn't do. He didn't go to a meeting. He had to have no meetings. And yet we tell newcomers all the time, go to a meeting. Oh, going to meetings, fine. Why don't you tell them, write a phone spell. Oh, you'll hurt their feelings. That's why you don't tell them that. You know? He didn't tell him to write a gratitude list. There's nothing wrong with that. It's not a... There's nothing wrong with it. He didn't tell him just go back up to the room and get on his knees and pray and just turn it over to God. And there's nothing wrong with that. I'm not knocking those things. But that's not a... He said, go find you another drunk. One-on-one... I don't know about the meetings you go to, but I'll do one-on-one any day. Let's go to a meeting a lot of times. Because that's the language of the heart. That's one drunk talking to another drunk. And if that drunk's only got 24 hours, 48 hours, he'll know where to take you. He'll know where to take you. And we don't tell people that. Now, when I went to Tyler, Texas, I didn't go down there to help Bill and Tammy get sober. I went down there to get rich. I didn't know there was going to be two drunks wanting a message. So the next time you're sitting around and you're feeling sorry for yourself and things are not going well for you, think, just remember this. God, too, has a plan for you. Thank you very much.